Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to construction, design, and architecture. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. My name is Michael. And today we have a pretty special episode in store for you. We're going to be talking about Passive House. Joining us in that conversation will be our regular host, Christoph Irwin from Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. And we have a very special guest today named Scott Witt. He's a colleague and friend of ours uh, and a fantastic architect here in Austin. And you'll get to hear a little more from him later on. But you may be wondering, what exactly is Passive House? For some of you, it may ring a bell. And for others, it may be something that you have never heard of before. In either case, we're gonna lay down the basics for you and then talk a little bit about how Passive House is playing into the construction and architecture industry today. The fundamental principles behind Passive House are rather simple. Passive House is at its core a standard, a very rigorous standard. Uh, It's a voluntary standard for energy efficiency in building. So you can see it's not necessarily limited to house, as the name would suggest, uh, but the ultimate goals, you know, you want to reduce your ecological footprint, uh, you want to reduce your reliance on rising energy costs, and so this standard is designed to actually take the building itself. When you analyze the elements of the building, how can you use those elements in the construction and design process to effectively reduce the house or the building's need for energy use to heat and cool the space. This is not to say that mechanicals are not used in passive houses, but they are relied upon much less intensively than traditional houses and buildings. So it's pretty easy to see that it's not necessarily limited to passive measures, and it's not necessarily limited to houses. The name Passive House actually came out of a conversation between two gentlemen, one Swedish, one German, named named Bo Adamson and Wolfgang Feist. So these two gentlemen were having a conversation about how they could actually theorize and construct a house using the very principles that I just outlined. And of course, through the history of Passive House and its implementation in colder climates in Europe and Scandinavia, the standard developed into something that actually took a pretty serious approach into worldwide proliferation. And this is important because the methodical nature of taking these core ideas and turning them into a standard that could be applied to building environments across the globe took a lot of deliberation, but it also took sort of an abstract concept and said, how do we approach this? Well, we know that building codes exist all over the world. People are familiar with the idea of building to a code, to a standard. So how do we actually take that and use that momentum to create a standard that actively reduces the building or house's need for energy consumption? And the conversation you're about to hear is one that we'll certainly revisit in the future, but we wanna take a societal look at why we build and talk about Passive House and its role in both society and the construction industry. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you all to our good friend and colleague, Scott Witt. Hello, my name is Scott Witt. I'm an architect here in Austin, Texas, uh, licensed in the state of Texas, recently certified as a certified Passive House consultant. Uh, 
have not yet designed one with the client or with you guys, uh, but looking forward to somebody who would be interested in that level of design. Christoph, you're, and you've told me that you're a, a building scientist who's very interested in the practice of architecture. And, and Scott, you're on the opposite end of that, in that you're an architect who's very interested in the practice of building science. And we're talking about Passive House today. Uh, we've gone over a little bit of what it is uh, as a principle, but I'm, I'm really interested to hear your respective thoughts on how Passive House plays into both architecture and building science and just the construction industry today. Awesome. You want to start? Good. Go ahead, Christoph. All right, I'm going to start. This is Christoph here. So I'm going to widen the lens all the way out to start and uh, start with the words, why do we build? Uh, with we being uh, human society, human beings, why do we build? There's many factors in that, right? So we could start rattling them off. One would be sanctuary. It might be beauty and expression, safety. Uh, you could consider your building a functional asset. You could consider it a financial asset. Um, I won't go on this tangent. I think there's a lot of uh, people delivering the built environment to our society right now that regard uh, a square foot of conditioned space as a commodity. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> and you know what happens when you commoditize a, something like a pound of beef or a pound of chicken, what happens to the quality? When they build to extend their style into the public realm as well, which good or bad. Yeah. What do you mean by extend their style? Well, you know, uh, the same reason why someone buys a $1,200 baby stroller as opposed to a $400 baby stroller. Uh -huh. Because it has a statement about who you are and what you value in society. Awesome. I mean, that's interesting. See, I was taking that, I guess we're going to go down this tangent a little bit. I was taking it more like the burgers, burgers and buildings kind of metaphor where burgers, there's a lot of places out there in the world that you can buy burgers. And it's not because burgers meet the functional need of human fuel perfectly. It's because the process to deliver burgers to society is perfected in, all, in a lot of dimensions. And one being the process is quite profitable for the people delivering burgers. <laughs> so buildings, right? I don't want to sound too down on it. There, there's definitely a, a process incentive to do what we know, to not challenge the status quo, to... Make it simple. What are my subcontractors good at? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't say that's a different burgers to buildings is interesting. I mean, uh, the market demands style. Mm -hmm. Not, and that, I wouldn't agree with it, but you know, houses in the past weren't stylistic uh, to the masses. It, they were rather, you know, rather useful. And to I the think, functional. Aspect. I think today we've gotten far, far away from that concept, and the house has to look a certain way, has certain accoutrements and finishes. I get Long it. before it's energy efficient, long before costs are really a consideration. So there's a lot of bling. So back to my big thing. So why do we build? We have all these factors as human beings that we might want to um, weight differently, right? So there's different ways to evaluate what we're delivering, whether we're thinking process or product based. And depending on what we choose as a priority, whether it's style, whether it's functionality, right? I need a certain number of bedrooms and I need a room for my golf simulation machine or my whatever it is. I've seen um, one of those on plants. <laughs> yeah, so people build maybe sometimes for their ideal lifestyle and not their actual, but um, that's, that's following that 
tangent. I'm not going to go there. So some of the big reasons, big factors that we use mainly right now to evaluate buildings would be efficiency. Um, you know, the word green is more of, I think, a marketing term right now than anything else. But energy use, uh, impact on the environment, um, whether it's low impact, sustainable, if it's restorative, that's even better. Um, of course, financial considerations, what's the first cost? That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. From an architect's point of view, with regards to passive house and how it relates to creating a home or a building, um, it's, there's implicit rules you know, from an energy point of view that you want to do as an architect you know, in this climate, Austin, Texas. You know, if you're building a single-family house, don't put two-story walls of glass facing west. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge preponderance of single-family, high-end custom homes that are have no overhangs in our climate either. And technology is getting to the point where we're able to do that, you know. And you guys are dealing with that on the front end in the sense oh, yeah. of how can you cool a house with that huge amount of glass, mm-hmm. with the latest technology. And it's getting to the point now where, yeah, we, we might be able to do a house that might be comfortable in a glass box mm-hmm. with an overhang and it just seems like we're shooting ourselves in the foot oh yeah um, and passive house you know again I don't know if you can design one as I described where it's lots of glass and overhangs you might be able to and meet the criteria I don't think it's a good practice to do it that way why not this just seems like it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth you could use thermal comfort as a metaphor for the bad taste yeah I mean is it, it can you bad be comfortable in, in that Two-story wall of glass facing west? That's a very... Uh, Can, I don't know. So what is comfort, right? Comfort is a sense of satisfaction with where you are. And so that is both um, intellectual-based, you know, cognitive. I'm taking in data and I evaluate it as such. It's also precognitive or, or limbic system-based, meaning your your body absorbs the thermal milieu around you and that creates a sense of ease or dis-ease, lack of ease, in terms of um, energy balance. And yeah, I've actually been on some projects where at the design meeting, and it was really challenging in terms of a little bit stressful to say, yep, I'm going to say this. In front of the architect, I say to the client, you realize if, if you stand in front of that wall of glass on a hot summer day or a cold winter morning, um, there's not enough, I can't with the air make you comfortable. Right? There's no way. You're mm-hmm. going to be exchanging heat with that surface through radiant transfer, and the air is not going to stop that. And so that's like a disclaimer almost, which is a, which is a clue. And it seems like even taking a step beyond that with respect to Passive House, we're not even talking about comfort, really. At the fundamental basis of the Passive House standard, it's a lot of it's energy-based, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's how to think about our energy use and do it in a reasonable way with the existing construction processes. Comfort is a byproduct, but it's interesting that it's not at the forefront of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the client coming to a design team, you know, an architect, an engineer, the contractor, everyone being well-versed in good building practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clients don't know that two-story walls of glass are bad for right. the most part. Mm-hmm. You, you, as the architect or the engineer or the builder, have to say, you know, hey, listen, there's a better way to do this. or. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very few times, but it does happen where you've got this great view and it's to the west. Mm. You know, deal with it, all right? Mm. But most of the time, that's not the case. And in a media-saturated world where people are looking at, Images. whether it's architecture magazines or Pinterest or wherever they're seeing it, the glass looks amazing. And especially mm. if you have, you know, there's a, I saw a great 
article recently about how is it possible to keep so much white linen in a space and this is like a, <laughs> like kind of undercutting Pinterest's whole approach um, but that white space looks so great because it has yeah, a lot of light coming at it so architecture is a formal practice and it's a shame but one one path for, toward architecture success today and keep in mind, uh, caveat that, that I'm a, coming at this from a science and engineering perspective, looking at architecture, I'm deeply interested in the process of delivering the built environment and architecture as an integral role there. But one path to success for, for you, Scott, would be to make um, buildings that are, in terms of form, the visual form, very um, provocative or out there or unique or stylized, that photograph very well and get your name out there as someone... Because right now, the, the internet, in terms of buildings, right, you can look at a building on, on your computer screen, but you can't feel the radiant load absorbed to your skin that you would feel if you sat in that living room. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's a, it's a challenge. You know, clients want lots of glass, or they want the what they perceive to be the, the most stylistic look to a house. And, but they aren't always the most comfortable. Mm -hmm. And you have to educate the client at every step of the, of the way, you know. And I think the profession of architecture is not doing a great job of that here in, in this city. It has the, the potential to, though. I, I see it. And, and with, it certainly does. Especially certainly. when there's a standard in place that you can reference along the way. It's saying, well, hey, our decisions should be guided by this practice. They're already guided by code, which we know is not necessarily like an A+. Plus. Yeah, code is the legal minimum. Otherwise, you'd be thrown in jail. <laughs> right. And so, that's unfortunately what the standard is. To those of you listening, if it seemed like we just did a um, bash glass party, uh, that's not our intention. We actually, uh, I understand that aesthetics and beauty and views and key view moments are uh, um, a crucial part of what you deliver to your client. I think but, of... Yeah, I, I want to jump please. in there. Please, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we are bashing glass, or I am. I, I think it's uh, poor design to, to do it. Uh, it's like how is a high-rise that's got four, four walls of glass green, right? I mean, Alex mm -hmm. Wilson from Environmental Building News wrote a good piece probably a couple of years ago about mm -hmm. it. But, you know, LEED or Passive House, you know, if you can design one that meets all these energy standards that's solid glass on four walls, it just seems ridiculous that, mm -hmm. that we should allow that to happen. Or should we allow it hold that up and say this is green? Yeah, lead right. platinum glass building. It's kind of striking. Good well, that that leads to the question of what is what is beauty? How are we defining yeah, exactly. what makes a building beautiful? That's right. What I, that's where I was getting to. Is, so it when? is it from day one? You know, right after the home store is done, it looks gorgeous. <laughs> sure. Or is it five years later when you know there's tinfoil on the outside of the windows? Well, what would be some of the factors to define beauty? Right, like the the thing that I think is happening today is it's stunning visual form. Uh, and maybe stunning views from inside the building. We're saying that represents beauty. It's as though we say, take that factor and give it the highest weighting function and say, if, if you meet that, you got beauty. But you are defending energy use. I'm talking a lot about thermal comfort. Uh, indoor air quality is coupled in there, right? A lot of UV comes through your building and it causes a lot of energy to cause a lot of chemical reactions and your VOCs, your indoor air quality suffers. Um, Economics could be a factor. First cost, is it, when you say economics, is it delivered cost or is it long-term cost of ownership? Um, from a societal perspective, are we saying annual energy use matters? <laughs> you get it? There's so many, it could be like mm -hmm. this big, long waiting function, a factor of beauty equals, excuse me, it's not an engineer when I say that, 
But <laughs> aesthetics times a waiting function plus comfort times a waiting function plus indoor air quality and health. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably easier to find um, comfort in a group of people than it is beauty. That's yeah. interesting. You know, I mean, I know what I like in a building from a visual and kind of tactile experience, but if the building's always cold or always hot and I live there, that's a different... You know, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't think it's so beautiful at times. But so beauty... So I actually subsume... I put beauty into comfort because I take comfort as being like a, a full-bodied experience. Body and mind are saying, I like this space. I'm comfortable here. But maybe that's not the right word. Satisfaction or... You get well, what I'm I, saying? Yeah, I see aesthetic. where you're coming from, but I would say the marketplace has a whole completely different perception of beauty it's completely very it's, it's a very decoupled th- very thinly uh delved into it's just you know what does it look like on the outside what kind of kitchen counters do i have and again mm-hmm. we're talking about single family residential mm-hmm. stuff at uh-huh. this time um you know that that composition the proportion and the scale of things that that defines beauty you know to me mm-hmm. um separate from comfort yeah it's i don't I don't think I've ever really said this at a design meeting, but it's striking to me how decisions that affect long-term energy costs or long-term costs of ownership, durability and energy, and thermal comfort for the life of the building are considered uh, too costly to really go there. Oh, we can't go there. We, you know, I don't know. Should you put a supplemental dehumidifier in there, a dedicated humidity control? No, no, no. That's too much money. And then I find out that the window package was $180,000 for this house, right, or, or more. And it's like, but no, you don't understand, my DHU was $5,000. <laughs> or even the mechanical design we want to deliver, you know, it might be five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 to say, we're going to actually design using engineering principles and document and have a written plan for the comfort delivery system. And in many high-end custom home projects, that is ignored and considered a costly extravagance. And what's interesting about, you know, you you say that in the marketplace, we have a different view of beauty, right? Um, I I think that's a little industry-specific, and it's unfortunate because I can think of another parallel. I watch uh, how it's made on TV when it, you know, it's on Netflix. You can, it's just bizarre that there's such intricate systems made to produce caramels, something really, really simple, right? But they've thought through every single piece of the production process from where they're sourcing the materials, how it's brought and transported through the factory itself, and then how it's delivered to the shelves. And, and that's how a, it tastes, I'm sure. And how it tastes, absolutely. There's quality control how, if it's to it. healthy. <laughs> right. And, and I watch that show, and something like that it strikes me as that intricacy is a really beautiful thing. Uh, the caramel itself is not necessarily beautiful. It could be, right, with certain other conditions put in place. It could be something that we consider more aesthetically beautiful. But in my mind, I I look at our industry and I think of Passive House as sort of this caramel factory that just hasn't quite been built yet, right? Like, we could be delivering these really amazing products that are standard and recognized and people know as that is a caramel, that is a Passive House. But we're just not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. And, And that's frustrating, but at the same time, it's also really cool to see the potential of it. You say Passive House to someone, either they've heard of it and made an opinion, they haven't heard of it, they're open to opinion, um, but the words actually are not perfect to describe no. it, right? It's it's active, it's not just passive. It's not just a house. <laughs> it's not just a house, right? So, um, 
the reason I widened the lens at the very beginning was to say there's all these factors that can go into play when you're evaluating whether a building is good. And see, and I add, I kind of equate good with beauty. Like beauty includes all the factors. I mean, we, we have to back up again. You know, just <laughs> we've been building for eons, right? And but getting the the mass market in Austin. Let's talk about our city. Mm-hmm. Um, just to build what we know is good building is difficult. I mean, Passive House is a step up from all that, but it's a few steps. Even up. the you know Austin Energy Green Building Program, five star green, whatever it is, that that's a step up from just basic good building, getting people to install flashing, right? Mm-hmm. Rough openings, you know, getting the ground, you know, the finished floor above grade is a challenge yeah. to some people. Yeah. Passive House is another tool that a team, a design team, a client can use to raise the bar and build a super efficient home mm-hmm. that's going to be super comfortable, it's going to be low maintenance on the long term. And that's because the house does the heavy lifting, right? Like the way the that we're thinking about houses right. and their enclosures. The enclosure has to do the heavy lifting. Yeah, right. you have to do, I mean, you have, you know, very few times when you're building a house to get things right inside the walls, inside the roof, underneath the floor, and you need to do it when you build it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can always change your floor tile or your cabinets or the hardware, mm-hmm. um, but fundamentally, you know, you make some stupid decisions in that beginning. You you know, you put that garage on the north side when you got the the western sun. You maybe put the garage over there. You know, things like that. You don't want to put living spaces on the west if you can avoid it. Mm-hmm. Uh, little decisions like that in the beginning are a significant impact down the road. And passive house it has that same concept where you can get that enclosure details correct, get the thermal bridging, get the amount of glass. Window-to-wall ratio you're talking about. Yeah, window-to-wall ratio, and thank you. Um, that, that's critical in a passive house. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. not going to build a glass box, in my opinion, that's going to meet the passive house. Unless it has really good glass and maybe phase change material. Or, you know, yeah. so you've done something. Um, just getting a little specific with passive house. So, so passive house... Uh, we're talking about Passive House International U.S. FIAS. They've there was uh, a pa- there is a Passive House um, standard in Germany that has split. There's a now a, you know, a new standard, the FIAS Plus 2015 standard. So when we say Passive House today, what is it? It's like July 16th, 2015. We're referring specifically to the FIAS Plus 2015 standard. And like Scott said, there would be if you were looking at you know raising the bar, the the lowest bar to, to leap over would be code, right? Yeah. If you're having trouble meeting code, that's a big clue that you're heavily tied to economics, which isn't a bad thing. But just know that, right? You're not tied to thermal comfort. You're not tied to long-term energy use, long-term cost of ownership. You're tied to first cost, right? So that's code. Beyond code programs, there is Austin Energy Green Building. Nationally, there's the Energy Star program, which is based on the ResNet HERS score. Um, Beyond Energy Star, there's uh, Challenge Home, which got rebranded as Zero Energy Ready Home. That's the DOE's. Mm -hmm. Um, There's Living Building Challenge. FIAS Plus 2015, you know, it's actually kind of in in cooperative um, communication with the DOE, and it's going to move into their code cycle, right? Or maybe not code, because code was a few steps down. It's going to move into the zero energy ready home and then eventually into energy star and then down to code. I mean, that's the progression. Well, before you get too far, uh, Mm -hmm. you said something that um, piqued my 
curiosity when you say that people are, you know, if you're building just to code, mm-hmm. um, that's a clue that they're that, looking that, at first cost. They're looking at first cost, but it, it might be more about um, or aesthetic. Or? The marketplace is asking for that, but at the same time, uh, the focus of your resources are ill-advised, right? So you're building a five thousand square foot house that barely meets energy code because. You know, you can build a spec home like that and sell it and make your money, mm-hmm. as opposed to building a twenty-five hundred square foot house that you know has a higher dollar per square foot and meets a higher level of energy criteria. You know, energy costs are really cheap here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And and that's real. I mean, it, to make it a little personal for a minute. Um, so I used to be a government research scientist in a bunch of labs and ventured out on my own as an entrepreneur. And my family said, "Oh, you're far too honest and you're far too." Um, I don't know, visionary isn't the right word, but you're not going to make it in the business world because you're not going to do things that you don't value doing. And I have seen, in doing energy inspections over the years, projects where someone's flipping a home, they're doing makeup on a pig, and someone's going to buy it, and that house looks beautiful, um, but it's a disaster. It's going to have really bad indoor air quality. It's going to be so much, it's going to be double or triple as expensive as it needs to be. And what really gets me a, a kind of, you can hear it, right? I'm a little upset is that if I'm eating a burger, right? And I do like burgers and I'm, you know, they're dripping with grease and they got cheese and, and it's good. I'm eating it and I'm aware that it's not the ideal, you know, functional human fuel. It's not, that's not why I'm eating it. I know that there's trade-offs and I can't eat burgers every day. But that, that's sort of common knowledge in our society, right? Here's healthy food. Here's mainstream fast food. And people know mainstream fast food is not particularly healthy. So we hope. Anyway. I hope, yeah. And <laughs> some people may, might not realize that. And there's economic realities that people can only afford certain things. It's still, my point is that there's, there's this recognition or implicit awareness of I'm consuming this food and it's, it, it ranks here in the health spectrum. People consume built environment today and don't know. They're unaware of the health implications or energy implications. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great, you know, if, if we can get to the passive house, it, you know, saturated into the Austin market to the point where people are talking about the amount of energy they use in their house, you know, from a BTU or kilowatt hour per square foot, as they know on their vehicles. Yeah. Right. My house is, you know, 20 miles per 20, gallon. 20 miles per gallon. Whatever it is. Yeah. Right. And it's 35 on the weekends. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. That, that would be an ideal scenario for Passive House to be able to raise that level of um, awareness in this city. Sure. And even beyond that, you know, I, I, like we mentioned earlier, green has become this sort of catch-all marketing term to sell products in the built world, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a go-to. And if people generally care, they want to buy green things, they want to be as green as possible, even... My own family has reached out and asked me, what are some things I can do to be green? And then when I asked them, well, what does that mean? They're like, I don't know. I thought that's what you did. Awesome. I think a lot of people don't don't really care what the mechanisms are, so long as someone they trust is there making it happen. And so if we could build, work on, like you mentioned earlier, build the infrastructure for Passive House to infiltrate to the point that it is code, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you have a lot of people who don't have to think about it or who may not even have that time or energy mm-hmm. to think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at an industry level, we're at the forefront of it, right? We're the ones who are already out there pushing this and trying to carve out that pathway. So it's an exciting time to be here 
in this particular market. So yeah, integrated design is a buzzword these days, and it darn well should be, right? Do you, you're manipulating form as an architect or a designer. You are also manipulating energy use, thermal comfort, long-term cost of ownership, durability. You're, you're manipulating everything all at once. When you, and you're manipulating economics, how hard it, or easy it is to build. But so your family is asking you, you know, I want to do something green, and passive house would be something green. Because passive house puts a quantified metric, set of metrics, on what it means to be green. Whereas a lot of other current standards, which are more societally palatable, they put an emphasis on, do I have a good recipe? Did I follow a good process? It's a checklist, right? A checklist approach. Well, But not yeah. necessarily a quantified result. I mean, lead for homes and green globes. and mm-hmm. they, you know, they do a good job at, at quantifying energy, not anywhere near the level of Passive House. But what those programs do that Passive House doesn't do is they take into account kind of uh, community assets, you know, building your house near a bus stop or building inside the central part of the city as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, suburban sprawl. Mm-hmm. Those are good things, right? I mean, to build, you know, if we started selling Passive House all over Austin and there were these, you know, 4,000 square foot houses out on 20 acres in western part of the county, you know, that's not a great utilization of the tool, I don't think. It does right. get the name out there, but but Passive House is the only one that is drilling down to the nuts and bolts and describing a building based on the energy input that was acquired to operate that building. Mm-hmm. And that's where um, the industry has to go. Right. Yeah, in fact, there's two ways to evaluate energy, and they're both currently being used. One is uh, annual energy use. And this is like saying if I have a certain amount of energy in my tank of my car. I fill my tank up, that represents a certain amount of energy. So how far can I drive on that tank? Right? That would be how efficiently did I use that energy over the course of the year. And that is going to be driven by, well, how steep a hill did I need to drive my car up? The hill representing how strong did my engine need to be to get me there. And the metaphor, maybe I'll switch it back to the houses now. So in a house world, your house uses energy at the uh, highest rate during peak heating and cooling uh, moments. And so those peak heating and cooling moments, you could say, well, look, I can make a very efficient engine. I can, you know, like I can, back to the car, I can take it and I can put a very small engine in the car and it'll be able to drive a really long distance on flat ground. But if it comes to a hill, I'm screwed. And in the house world, that would be... um, I can make a very efficient house, but if it gets hot or cold, I'm going to be uncomfortable inside, right? So that's that's a bad thing. And what you can do to lower the steepness of the hill, or to maybe if I have a small engine, how can I go up? I'm not going to drop that metaphor. So if I have a house and I want to <laughs> reduce the peak heating and cooling load, I want to reduce how much energy I need to cool it in the middle of summer, well, what can I do to reduce that load so that I can have a smaller energy the rest of the year? There is a good way to introduce why windows and shading and orientation and massing and aperture, all that come in because what they're saying is you've got a fixed amount of energy in your tank and if you're very mindful of how do I use it and when, then you can make it go really long distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, driving back to the standard of passive house, there's three critical components. Um, total energy limit, the limits on loads and air tightness um, 
people are hitting those in various methods now. The current air tightness code for the current energy code is what? Uh, five. Five air changes per hour. Mm-hmm. Passive house is 0.6, but they've just shifted to a per square foot of enclosure area. And since passive house is climate and location specific, we are talking about people here in Austin who are hitting these marks. Not that they're aiming towards Passive House, but in this market that Passive House has actively said, you know, we're going to make sure that we're accounting for your specific environment. There are people here already doing things that are moving toward that end. And the standard, you know, a lot of standards are point-based, five-star, four-star, whatever. Mm -hmm. This Passive House is a pass-fail. Either you hit the target or you don't. Um, It's, you know, pretty simple. You design your building, do the loads, right. size the equipment, and if you don't hit it, you don't hit it. you got to figure out how to, how to get there, uh, which is a great thing. There's no gray area. And, and the modeling, right? So keep in mind that when it's a proposed building, when it's not actually built, your pass-fail is based on the model building, and that modeling is a hydrothermal model, which is much better than just the thermal models that we've typically been using. And so WUFI, which stands for heat and moisture flow, in German, WUFI passive is actually one of the compliance tools. It's the newer compliance tool. PHPP was the spreadsheet-based. So the compliance was, I guess I'll go ahead and talk about it. So when we talk about the total energy and the loads, right, it's per climate zone, how do you meet them? Well, you have to have an annual heating demand less than some number, an annual cooling demand less than a different number, and that includes both sensible and latent cooling. And then you have to make the peak loads. You have to make your peak heating load less than some number and your peak cooling load less than some number. So in any given climate, you've got four numbers, right? Heating and cooling demand over the course of a year and then the peak heating and cooling loads. And currently, people are sizing equipment based on peak in in the general practice of the building industry. Right. Uh, Previous passive Mm -hmm. house allowed you to pick whether you wanted to meet the demand, the, the criteria, whether it was annual. peak or annual, and people usually picked, I believe, the peak, peak mm-hmm. because it was easier to hit. Right, so <clears> now, <throat> it's e- now it's both and correct by location. Mm-hmm. And why is that important? It's, it's, I don't know, it's a good question. It's, it's a tighter range of comfort that you're hitting as opposed to just the peak. But well, it's, it's saying that, you, so implicitly the, to reduce the loads, what you're saying is I've invested in the enclosure and when you're talking about the annual, well, the enclosure affects everything, right? I guess all four of them are saying invest in the passive. You can almost call the enclosure the passive measures. I mean, you can call it that. It's Once it's built, it's built. And then there's all the systems, mechanical systems that go into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. A couple other highlights that I think were really important to um, help shape your views on the new Fias Plus 2015 standard. right? So we just talked about there's... Um, these four numbers that you need to hit for heating, cooling demand, and heating and cooling peak loads, those have been quantified by location, and it's a very specific location, right? So Austin has its own set of numbers, and those numbers were determined by doing uh, an analysis that was based on economics, right? So cost-effectiveness is one of the fundamental problems that the FIAS technical committee set out to address when it's proposing this new standard um, because the old standard often 
resulted in buildings that were over-insulated and not cost-effective, right? So how much should you invest in a passive measure? It's very important to do this analysis that quantifies both the first cost and the long-term energy costs, long-term operational costs of the building. And, and that's that, a big deal because they're actually oh, yeah. taking into account project budgets, right? And the fact that people who are living in these houses also have finite economic resources. Right. Most of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very important. You don't want to make it such that it's just this boutique home product that uh, only the uber-rich true believers can get into. It's so it's interesting though, right? Like airbags made their way into the North American car market, which they've dominated. They're completely integrated into the car market now, but they came in through very high-end luxury automobiles. Trickle-down economy. Trickle-down, <laughs> trickle I guess. So Scott characterized there's, there's three core requirements, right? There's the peak energy, annual energy loads, peak, excuse me, annual energy use, peak loads. This air tightness standard has been kind of infamous. Um, it's recently changed from a straight-out 0.6 ACH air changes per hour at 50 to a shell area standard of 0.05 CFM at 50 per square foot of gross envelope area. That's different. That eliminates the large home bias. That's a big deal. Um, other crunchy aspects of the Fiat Plus 2015 standard are that when you test the home for air tightness you're allowed to tape off non-threatening things like door thresholds and vent dampers because they're really looking at durability. They're saying you're going to you know you're not going to rot down your house if air moves through your fresh air intake or something like that. So the reference standard for the passive house you would be hitting something like this is in Austin. For an Austin Austin house. Yeah. Yeah, for an Austin house at 2500 square feet you would be required to hit 2 tons. That's 1,250 square feet per ton. And that's very doable. That's doable. I mean, people are doing that now in the Green Building Program. They're hitting 900,000, 1,100 square feet per ton. Mm -hmm. So it's not an unreasonable um, achievement, I guess, or to achieve that. Right, right. And there are going to be uh, layers over that because the heating load is going to be on that. The annual cooling and annual heating demand are going to also all have to be met. But... Typically in Austin, meeting your um, meeting a cooling load threshold is actually a challenge. Uh, so this is an example of the passive house standard being climate zone appropriate and being cost effective. Right? They're looking for cost effective measures. They're not saying, "Look, you have to build the space shuttle type of enclosure mm -hmm. to meet the passive house standard." They're just saying you have to to not make big mistakes. <laughs> There's one really gutsy move that the technical committee of FIAS did that I want to give credit to. I want to make sure people are aware of it. They, so we're talking about energy use cap over the course of a year, and typically these are always referenced to uh, how many square feet the building is. So if you have a bigger building, you can use more energy, even if it's just two people living in it. Mm -hmm. Well, FIAS Plus put in a per-person energy use cap to qualify for this standard. That's a really big shift. Like, it's a philosophical shift, um, and it it's something I think they should get a lot of good credit for. If you say, look, every person on the Earth is entitled to a fair share of uh, the atmosphere and of mm. Earth's resources, then a per-person energy use cap is fair. Mm. But if you say, well... Some people 
are actually entitled to more of the Earth's resources and more of the Earth's atmosphere, right? And um, that's interesting. I'm not going to go into that right now. I hadn't considered <laughs> it from that perspective, but that's a well, yeah. I mean, just uh, you know, two people in a big house will use more resources than two people in a smaller house. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, if two people want a big house by the passive house uh, Fields Plus 2015 standard, that's fine. It's going to be a really awesome big house in terms of annual energy use, peak heating and cooling loads, because air tightness. Because it's got to meet that metric. Because it's got to meet a per person energy use cap. I see. A passive house is definitely uh, situating itself in between, let's see, if you did a Venn diagram and you had one circle that was artistry, like this is artistry meaning an architect in full command of his, uh, his art. And the other side, the other side of the Venn diagram would be science, right? Thermodynamics and human comfort. And then where those two overlap, uh, energy use, of course, would be in the science side. Where those two overlap, that's where the passive houses squarely situated themselves. Art and science overlap, uh, along with actually the the factors of what makes um, a building good. Right? It's it's got to be good in ways other than, ooh, I looked at it and it looks good. And to be clear, though, this is not a checklist design exercise. Right. You, know, you can design measure. it whatever you want. <laughs> you just have to meet the miles per gallon requirement for right. that design. Um, so, you know. Right. That's that's a really good point. You go figure it out. You don't get to just check off boxes and say you've met this point or that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. As the way it should be. I know that another philosophical underpinning that they're looking at, the technical committee, is talking about saying you're going to get a preliminary or a provisional uh, passive house certification until one year after you live in the home and then we're going to measure we're going to look at how your energy use came out well the point i'd like to really leave our listeners with is that we're we're entering a a new paradigm where this is possible And, and i would love for you if you're in the construction industry in any capacity to look for your local FAS chapter, find out how you can get involved and what they're actually doing to engage the construction community, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're an architect or an aspiring architect, whatever capacity you're in, be a voice because the more momentum this has, the better chance we have of actually seeing it implemented at scale. And that's important. All right. So one final recap, um, a few points. One is about the FIAS Plus 2015 standard. It is cli- it's climate zone specific, it's building science based, it's economically justified, hydrothermal modeling is built in, it's very stringent on performance testing, as it should be. It has that um, bold per person energy use cap, and they are looking at um, measured performance basis for certification. This has been a fantastic dialogue today want to thank our listeners and thank both of you. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks, Christoph. All right. You're welcome. We'll see you next time. You're welcome.